But I'm dope, Black Detroit. It's Yousef, Bunch of Shakur from Zone 8, Detroit. Revolutionary activist, organizer. Coming today with you, we have 2021, the state of Black Detroit. Detroit is different at the Mama Cool House, December 30th, 2021 at noon. We're coming to have a conversation about leadership, housing, education, justice, economics, access to opportunities, legacy. Black Detroit, what does that mean? Evaluating ourselves, evaluating our history. How do we change this course? Critically looking at our past to determine our present and our future. Peace. See you there. Black Detroit. All right, Detroit is different, as I always say, back here in the podcast studio. And I'm always saying it's a special guest. I need to get some more adjectives, but uh, this is more than a special guest. This is a foundational guest. The very first time I did this podcast, probably even before he knew what a podcast was. And by this time, he's been on many, many podcasts. It started with Baba Malik Yakini. Malik Yakini was the first person I said, I definitely want to bring Baba Malik on for my first podcast. It's the start and the orientation of Detroit is different. And even that podcast was a story at Le Petit Zinc. And I don't know, like I said, I'm sure he didn't really know what podcasts were at the time. And that was seven years back, 2014. Uh, it was April. I want to say April 28th, 2014. The very first interview. And it was actually the best first interview because as much and as long as I've known Baba Malik, that conversation opened up so many doors of like things I didn't know about Baba Malik. So seven years later, we're here, 2021. I'm doing this Cash App crowdfund campaign. But more so importantly, I'm back with another interview with Baba Malik. Baba Malik, how you feeling? I'm going. I'm doing good. How you doing? Eh, everything is everything we started like with the short pregame talk and you yeah. dropping gems and jewels of understanding the people and where we at and what we doing and organizing and we'll definitely get to that but before we even get to that let's talk a little bit about not just um detroit is different but just your understanding of like what has happened with this podcast spaces tech space i'm sure that was your first podcast interview as it not just you it was like sharon mcphail's henry tyler's uh thornetta's like a lot of people i introduced them to the world um what's been your understanding of just this whole world of content and media since 2014 when when i interviewed you you know i think the world of media as well as the world of media production as well as the world, excuse me, of music production has become more democratized mm -hmm. since that time. So, mm -hmm. you know, essentially you got a TV studio set up here in a house on Clemens on the west side of Detroit. Sure. That can produce professional quality material that can be distributed all over the world. Mm -hmm. And so 20 years ago that didn't exist. You know, I don't know if it existed seven years ago, but certainly it exists in a much greater way mm -hmm than it did seven years ago. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's accessible. I mean, you're not, as far as I know, you're not no, like, wealthy, wealthy, wealthy. Nah. I mean, you're spiritually wealthy and culturally wealthy. Mm -hmm. But, I, you know, I don't think you got no big bank account, you know. So, nah. I mean, you like an average dude, and you've been able to put your money together and make this happen. And so for those who have the vision and who have the initiative, you know, I think the, the world of uh, media and the world of music production is much more open for us to, kind of take control of things and, you know, and craft our own messages and craft the way those messages are put out to the world. And it's unique because, like I said, um, I know it's just j kind of on the humble, like all my first interviews, mm -hmm. like people just know me like, yeah, yeah I do it, brother. You know, yeah, like, yeah, all right, yeah, 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 that's cool. You know, and I don't even think, you know, but 
at this point in time, that has thousands of listens as the initial Detroit is different. Mm. And I go back and it's like, man, I wish it sounded a little bit better and mm-hmm. this and that. But it's still the start, you know, and, and just having that starting place. And you've been mm-hmm. a part of a lot of starting places, mm-hmm. uh, as I found out on that podcast. So I reference a lot of people to go back and listen to that. Um, you, you know, if I can interject, I, I, I came across the podcast two days ago. Because there's a Facebook page somebody started called Crucial Reggae, the history of Crucial Reggae in Detroit. Wow. And it's a private group that Brother Idris, you know Idris Nia? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that he started. DJ Wright. Yeah, that's right, Eddie Wright. And so I was looking, I was uh, Googling stuff to find some pictures of Onyx. And when I Google Onyx, the podcast with you came up because I guess <laughs> I, I was talking about Onyx on that podcast. So it was interesting just in the last couple of days, you know, the universe took me right back to that. And, and we spoke and that's where like, you know, I like the art of conversation. People know I love talking. So this is where it's so fun because in that podcast, it just like the layers as I've learned, you know, if you're in, if, if I have a good presence of mind and I'm focused, you can find out so much of a wealth of a person you've known for a long time. Yeah. And just even the history of Detroit Reggae, mm-hmm. which I saw information about that page as well. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, like, yeah, Det- Detroit does have a rich reggae history. Yeah. And you introduced a lot of that during that podcast. Then mm-hmm. I started making these other ties and mm-hmm. thinking back like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It was a lot of reggae around here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, so so since we're in that space, e- even something like that existing where you have like, I guess, uh, what you call, um, you know, what would they call cult audiences, niche audiences, like like what would be considered very small now through online can be vast, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and it's almost flipped itself on its ears where like it, the more niche you are online probably the better it is for your audience because mm-hmm. if you're trying mm-hmm. to replicate what's in traditional media as I call it mm-hmm. it's not really going to have the same type of hook you know but if it's Detroit reggae that's very specific mm-hmm. in a specific audience that really has a reach of thousands of people tens of thousands of people mm-hmm. but you know would I don't know would would NBC feel like that's something is is tens of thousands of people enough for NBC no probably not no but tens of thousands of people is beyond rich for an online audience. Right. You know? So, I mean, when, when we think about um, starting there, what has that tool meant in the work you do? Because you do a lot of organizing. You work with people creatively. Um, what, how has uh, this, this world of media impacted some of the things you do? Well, I spend probably too much time on social media. Uh, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll start with that. I probably spend way too much time looking mm-hmm. at reels of people doing dances to African, West African music mm-hmm. on uh, on Instagram. Okay. But in addition to that, and that, that's also impacted by me being home alone a lot as, as a result of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we've learned to use social media more skillfully in terms of promoting the various things I've been invo- I'm involved in, uh, the band, Molly Wap. Uh, Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, Detroit People's Food Co-op. So all of those have a consistent and robust online presence. And uh, again, we're learning how to more skillfully do that in terms of varying up the type of posts that are posted, when they're posted, mm-hmm. frequency of post, um, hashtagging, you know, to connect to other things, all, all those kinds of things. We're learning uh, much more about that and able to build, in a sense, an audience 
you know, I mean, for example, on Molly Wap's Facebook page, I think we got 3,000 followers. Mm. Now, prior to that, you know, if that didn't exist and we were just playing around and had a mailing list and we were trying to develop mailing lists of followers, it would be very difficult to get 3,000 followers. Mm. So, yeah, so, we, you know, we've used social media to, to advance the things that we're doing. But also, you know, at the same time, everything, all technology is really neither good nor bad, but there's good aspects and bad aspects to it if you want to look at it like that. And so, you know, there's some downside to the immersion of people in social media also. You know, to some extent, uh, the digital interaction has replaced certain actual face-to-face interaction, particularly during the pandemic. But even before that, you know, I can remember a few years ago being um, at a sister's house and there were three teenage girls there. And they were all in the same room, but they were all on their phone. They weren't mm. interacting with each other at mm. all. They were interacting with the device. So, you know, mm. I'm just saying with all technology, whatever it may be, you know, uh, automobiles, social media, guns, whatever the technology is, you know, it's, uh, you have to have a value system that uh, dictates how you use it. And you have to be clear on what your goals are and be clear of the possible negative uh, connotations associated with the technology as well. Okay. And um, y- you introduced uh, some of the projects you're working on, um, but it's always so much depth in it. Uh, so let's go with uh, Black Food Security Network. Uh, that is something that uh, that has grown uh, uh, immensely. And I do think that uh, online footprint helps. But those in-person people, mm-hmm. You know, the people that the boots on the ground yeah. definitely are going to play a stronger role than mm-hmm. than just a person that interfaces online. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you all connected both? Well, you know, you can't do farming digitally. And so the, one of the main things Detroit Black Community Food Security Network does is operates D-Town Farm, a seven acre farm. And while you can use digital technology to help manage certain aspects of the farm, ultimately, you got to have boots on the ground. As you say, you got to have people putting their hands in the soil and doing the work. And so, you know, the digital world has not replaced that. Uh, So we still have a great need for the physical manual labor and also for people to make a connection with the earth because part of farming is developing a relationship with the piece of land that you're on, which only happens over time. You know, when you farm the same piece of land season after season after season, you start to see certain cycles and certain patterns within it that aren't apparent within one or two years. But over a longer period of time, you can start to see these various cycles. And so that kind of intimate knowledge of the land is necessary um, in order to make the kind of connection, you know, with with farming, with the plants, with the earth that, um, you know, that was kind of the basis of our ancestors' uh, approach to agriculture. It's not just a mechanical thing. It's a spiritual thing also because we're dealing with energies. We're dealing with the earth, which is not just the third stone from the sun, but the earth is actually alive and emanates energy. You know, and there's um, this uh, new thing, you know, some white people have created. They call grounding uh, where, you, you know, you go outside and you take your shoes off and walk on the earth. That's funny. And and, and I'm the, uh, it's so funny, like on Josh's podcast, he always calls me the barefoot CEO because I'm such a barefoot person, usually, especially summertime, like Uh even hot concrete is, Mm -hmm. you know, you grow up 
yeah. it still sticks with me. Yeah. Especially graphs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you gotta be smart, not not any get any shards of glass or right. anything like right, that. Right. But um, yeah, just the the um, you know the way that things can be uh, labeled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's mm-hmm. put it like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. white folks have labeled a lot of things where it's like, damn, I didn't even know that it was a term for that. <laughs> yeah. But that was just the yeah, just something you know, we something we've been doing all along, and then all of a sudden, you know, yeah, it's a, grounding. There's a, there's a name for it. Yeah, but you know, but that aside, you know, the neo-colonial uh, perspective perspective aside. Uh, the reality is that um, the earth emanates energy mm-hmm. and that we need connection with that energy for us to be whole. And that, so we're part of a, um, a matrix, you could say, of life um, and not not like the matrix, the movie matrix, not that kind of matrix. But, you know, we're part of an interconnected web of life. Mm-hmm. And so in order to really pursue, you know, farming, agricultural development in a way which produces food that is healthy, but also doing it in a way which is healthy for the planet, we have to have this deeper relationship and connection. And so, um, so you know, you were asking me about the human elements of, of DBCFSN as opposed to the digital elements. And I'm saying that none of that, that connection can't be built digitally. You have to, like, be out there in relationship to the land to really start to develop that. Um, but, you know, the other thing is that not only are we working the land, the land is working us. Because when you're out farming, you learn so many lessons in nature that can be applied to us. And, you know, even looking at our own history as a people, if we look at ancient Kemet, you know, we look at many of the deities had the characteristics of animals. Um, because what they were doing is looking out into nature and seeing how these various characteristics manifested themselves in nature and understanding that human beings are a microcosm of the universe. We're a microcosm of the larger reality. So those same tendencies that exist and manifest in the outer world in the form of, you know, characteristics of various animals also manifest inside of us. And, you know, similarly to, um, you know, in, uh, in Ifa, you know, we have Orisha uh, that are, um, you know, representative of certain characteristics mm-hmm both in the outer world, but more so it's representative of those characteristics, those energies inside of us. And so as we're working with the earth and, and reestablishing our relationship with nature, it teaches us things about ourselves, and we can become more fully human. And so, again, technology can't do any of that. We have to be there in it and, uh, you know, allow ourselves to be shaped by it at the same time that we're shaping our reality. Definitely. Uh, and, and you spoke, spoke about farming. Uh, we have the extended project of what we're doing with Detroit is different through the plots of land next to my house and the farm boxes kind of all guided from what you were saying. Hey, you need to do this. These are some ideas. You gave some good uh, advice on it all. Mm-hmm. And we kind of got going with it. Yeah, you and I'm sure job, you've uh, too, thank you. Thank you. It, it's uh, it's been eye opening. But even over the years with D-Town Farms, yeah. uh, what have been some of the relationships you've developed with other people in the community? And how is it now, you know, bumping into people like, hey, you help me get my garden going? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, so from the beginning, we always saw ourselves as a catalyst. We weren't trying to be the biggest, baddest nonprofit in town and control mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. We're trying to take an idea, a concept, and embed it in our community so that the people take it up. And this is really based in kind of our theory of social change. 
you know, that we're not just we're not a typical nonprofit organization. More so, we're an organization that's participating in the black liberation movement that's utilizing the nonprofit structure as a way to get things done. Not that we're wedded to that structure and we would be doing the work. You know, if the government say you're no longer not a 501c3, that's not going to stop our work. We'll continue it because the work supersedes the the structure that we do it through. So, um, damn, I forgot your question, man. So I, I was just saying, like, what is it like just bumping into people oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, you, you see and and, and kind of you, oh, yeah, you yeah, set yeah, up yeah. and said kind of down a path that the vision always was yeah, for the, yeah, the vision to always inspire was, a person to say. Absolutely. So, you know. Again, we're not trying to bring everybody into our organization mm-hmm. and control, you know, we be powerful and everybody can say, oh, they're, you know, they're great. What we're trying to do is have 10,000 little foot soldiers out here in the community, you know, who have this consciousness in their minds and they, they're they doing things. You know, you, you know, like what you did, for example, I didn't really, you know, remember that I had some, you know, significant influence on you in that way. You know, I'm, I'm glad that's true. Um and there's probably other people I didn't even think about mm-hmm. it, you know, but they're they're seeing what we're doing and they're picking up. And so that's the idea. And not only in terms of how you propagate gardens, but in terms of how you propagate revolutionary consciousness in general. You don't want to have it concentrated just only in, you know, in a few people that can easily be isolated and picked off. You want to have the consciousness spread out among the people so that it becomes kind of part of the general culture. Right. And so w- one of the things that we're able to do is is frame this agricultural work in a way that promotes the idea of self-determination in general for black people because, you know, we're framing it as being able to do for self and provide for some of our own basic needs. And once people get engaged in that and they see, well, we can take our vision, we can take our uh, mental ingenuity, take our physical labor and the blessings of Mother Earth and actually produce something that can sustain our life, produce something beyond rhetoric, right? Because in the, in, I would say in black activist circles, we're heavy on the rhetoric. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the actual results, usually we can put them in a thimble. Mm-hmm. And so the thing about our agriculture, you, you have something actual, real, concrete, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day that can actually sustain people's lives. And so that clicks something in people's heads. It'd be like, damn, okay. We can produce, we can do for ourselves. And then and hopefully the idea is people will say, well, maybe we can make shirts too. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we can make shoes. You know, once that flame of self-determination is lit and people see concrete examples of how it can make our lives better, then it's our hope that that will become a more general part of our consciousness. So, again, what we're trying to do is infuse this consciousness into our people. And, you know, we're trying to do work as an organization, too. But we don't want everybody to be in our organization. We, You know, that's a, that's a weakness if you have everything concentrated in one mm-hmm. place. We want to have a diversity of organizations and ideas that are approaching this work in different ways, but still with the common objective of uplifting our community. So you spoke Black Liberation Movement. Yes. You, you spoke to that. Yeah. Um, I definitely want to point that out. What what does that mean to you? Please give a definition. What What is that? Well, maybe I'll frame it by giving a little history and saying that in this most recent era of um, intense black activism, the 1960s and 70s, and, you know, I mean, not to discount what we've seen in the last few years with Black Lives Matter and the protest around George Floyd, um, but the 
kind of classical civil rights era that we often talk about from mm-hmm. 1954 to 66 or so, around 1966, that movement morphed into something else. And it was influenced by some other, you know, very progressive activists and thinkers, Malcolm X at the forefront, clearly. Um, uh, brother um, Max Stanford, Muhammad Ahmed, um, you know, was another person who was kind of in, in the forefront of this more revolutionary thought going beyond what the civil rights movement was, which was basically that we're going to appeal to the moral conscience of white America. And if we can show them where, you know, this is wrong and inhumane to beat us and sick dogs on us, that this will change the way they look at us and change their behavior. And then also the civil rights movement was very heavily invested in achieving gains for black people through legislation and, and, and through court action. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I'm not against any of those things, but uh, many people, uh, you know, their consciousness began to evolve. And, for example, Kwame Torrey, Stokely Car- Carmichael, moved to the point where they no longer saw it as being a viable option to for black people to get our freedom with inside the context of the current United States government. And so the black liberation movement would be that aspect of our struggle. And again, it kind of morphed in 1966 when um, Musaka Willie Ricks and Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture started calling for black power. Um, it, it morphed. And so we had an aspect of the black liberation movement, you know, the Black Panther Party uh, and many organizations that were not trying to reform American society, but were really trying to like fundamentally change it. You know, uh, you know, and I'm being careful in the words I, I use mm-hmm. because you know part of digital media is you know all kind of things yeah. are monitored and, and keywords yeah. come up and you get tagged. But although I'm tagged anyway, so it doesn't really yeah, matter. Yeah, I can but, only imagine. But you know, I mean, there were groups that were trying to make revolutionary, fr- frankly, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they uh, and so I believe I still believe that there is no freedom for black people within the context of the United States government, that in order for black people to be free and self-determination, determining that we have to dismantle capitalism, the economic system. And also we have to dismantle white supremacy. And most importantly, we have to build the internal power and capacity to run our own affairs, to control our own destiny. And so that would be the black liberation movement as opposed to a civil rights approach where the main thrust is trying to get the people who are oppressing you to see you differently. You know, black liberation centers us. We're at the center of our liberation, not what somebody else does. Mm-hmm. What's most important is what we do. We're the generators of reality. We're not just responding to someone else's reality. Mm-hmm. So it's not looking to be, I guess, accepted and included into the structure of uh, whatever uh, of society. Let's use that term of society that someone else has built that was never even built for you. Uh, I was having this discussion with uh, with someone the other day about just the structure of America and uh and I was like, you know, America was designed specifically for white men that own property. Yeah. So the further you move away from being one of, you know, having agency in that, yeah. then the further away, whatever like changes you make, it, it's not designed for that. It's right, like, you exactly. know, if we're playing basketball, it's good to, you know, steal the ball. It's mm-hmm. good to to get a rebound. It's mm-hmm. good to, you know, ha- have a cool crossover. Mm-hmm. But you win the game by scoring the most points. Yeah. 
So that's the foundation of it. Mm-hmm. And the further you go away from scoring points, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to be a good basketball player. Right. You know, it, so it, it all of the adjustments kind of, you know, steer us off path. Yeah. Um, and and I gave that point to to more so say that uh, when I think of the whole concept of black liberation and you spoke to uh, Kwame Ture and studying, studying some of his life and the people that were around him and the organization. And sometimes I think we can exalt figures without like the collective of the people around them. Yeah. And I do think it's a collective consciousness yeah. that consciousness that brings about a Kwame Ture, sure. a Malcolm X, sure. a, a whomever this figure is. Absolutely. But uh H. Rod Brown, when I think of this, mm-hmm. the phrase black power, mm-hmm. and, and, and you're more so in that pulse. Mm-hmm. And even now I think of the term black lives matter. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because it's like it's an organization, but it's also a phrase. And then it's kind of becomes murky of like, you know, like wh- wh- who is black lives matter? Mm-hmm. The, the phrase means something, mm-hmm. you know, even Kyle Rittenhouse just said, you know, I believe I support black lives matter, you oh, know, did I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, but was black power at that time kind of accepted and, and, and propagated in that same in that same sense? I mean, from yeah, yeah, what yeah. You it remember, wasn't it you wasn't know? monolithic, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so you had all kind of manifestations and all kind of interpretations of what that meant. In fact, uh, Nixon in 1972 called for black power. You mm-hmm. know, so you know there can be all kind of interpretations. So no, it wasn't singular. It was you know very much the same as Black Lives Matter movement. Now that they're you know, there are various tendencies within that, various interpretations. And, and even when H. Uh, Rod Brown said it, you know, I think it's one of the coolest, you know, phrase, uh, I mean, phrases ever. I mean, was it even like a pulse? W- what was the interpretation of the people? You know, what do you think was the interpretation on, on the pulse of, of that immediate response? You know, I don't know, because, you know, I wasn't there and. Uh, you know, I, you know, I'm reading stuff in newspapers and looking at news clips and stuff like that. So it's hard to tell the people who are actually there how that impacted them. I can more say the impact it had on me as a 12 and 13 year old. Okay. You know, so I was 13 in 1969. Yeah. I was 11 in 1967 when the rebellion occurred in Detroit. I was 10 in 1966. So you know, these are formative years, and so you know, seeing seeing these calls for Black Power and hearing. You know, uh, H. Rap Brown, what, or formerly known as H. Rap Brown, um, and you know, Stokely Carmichael at the time, and hearing, you know, reading Black Panther p- p- uh, paper and newspapers, it affected me tremendously. Hmm. Probably the first way it affected me is, you know, black men are always trying to figure out what does it mean to be a black man in America. How do we, you know, how do we define ourselves, and you know, what is what's you know, what's cool and hip and, you know, we're trying to figure this out is 12, 13 year olds, you know, how, how we show up in the world. And so as I'm trying to figure this out to have these be the major influences on me, I just feel really blessed to have grown up in that time as Mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, now, um, for example, a 12 or 13 year old black male. Probably he's a rapper. Yeah, probably, you know, and it, you know, probably not or a athlete or rapper. Yeah, exactly. You know. And probably and not an athlete or rapper who's got much consciousness either. Yeah. And depending you know. upon what it is, what's cool could yeah. be, you know, a whole different type of spectrum of yeah. their own interpretation of masculinity. Too, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, so so that's unique uh, when, when I think about something like that. Yeah. Because uh, it was you just just from this. 
oftentimes, and I'm sure like 20 years from now when somebody asks like, hey, you were alive during the Black Lives Matter movement. What was going on? And mm-hmm. I'll say, all right, let me stop for a second. Yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. Like, okay, it was, so it's an organization. <laughs> But it also was, I think, more people galvanized under the concept of it in the whole concept, I believe, in response to black men being murdered by or predominantly black men uh, being murdered by police officers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the whole concept is like our life matters. And it was like it's like in marketing. It's a it's a slogan that hits the same way, I guess, black power can hit. But let me let me tell you the difference. And I don't want to be critical of folks who are into the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. Because I think overall it's overwhelmingly positive, and I'm very glad to see so many young people younger than me mobilized, you know, mm-hmm. on behalf of black people having our full human rights. So I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, often people will say, well, black lives matter to who? Who is this appeal being made to? And I, I would suggest that primarily it's an outer appeal. It's an appeal yeah. of black people to the larger society to change the way they are acting towards us. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing to do. We should, I, I think we need to spend a certain amount of our time and energy doing that. But I think what is more significant is our own internal perception of ourselves I got you. and how we shape our own reality. Again, anytime we put the power outside of ourselves and our destiny is dependent upon what somebody else does or doesn't do, then we're not practicing self-determination. And, and that goes beyond the black liberation movement, which is funny you brought up Richard Nixon, uh, definitely a friend to, uh, or I shouldn't say a friend, but an ally, I should say, of one of uh, one of black America's favorite sons in music of of, uh, of James Brown. Oh, I thought you were going to say Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, th- him too. <laughs> him too. But, uh, and, and then even that song, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a song that, uh, as he made it, um, represented was in response to like what you say. Because I, I, when I hear black power, just from a marketing mind, mm-hmm. black power is way more internal. We want black power. Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. okay, that's them more in the realm of self-determination. Right, right. Black Lives Matter, I agree, is mm-hmm. more of a like more of the lens of civil rights. Like yeah. we, black lives matter too. We want to be seen. Yes. Like you, yes. Versus black power, yes. Is like this is independence. This is, yes. You know, this we're, is our thing. Yeah, we will control our own destiny. Yeah, but and, but again, I want to be clear I, mm-hmm. because I think both are necessary. And you know, I thought often about this. These kind of two aspects to our struggle. Yeah. That yes, we have to be dismantling and challenging these oppressive systems, and we have to create the reality that we want. And you know. Recently, I've been kind of going through, uh, like, the, some of the supreme mathematics and what have you. And I was like, damn, uh, right there, you know, in the in the simple term build, destroy, that really encompasses the whole thing. You know, it's like, you know, those are the two, the two things that we have to do. So I don't want to, like, diminish the Black Lives Matter folks because I think it's important that we have people challenging the system. But I think we need to be very cautious about how much energy we put into that and put the vast majority of our energy into building black self-determination. How, how do people even have a point of reference? And I like that you said that is that's 
one of the discussions. Uh, I don't know if he remembers it, but I know my dad remembers it. When I met Dr. Claude Anderson as a kid, I was like, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, his critique of civil rights right. uh, and black labor, white wealth, one of the greatest mm-hmm. minds when we think of black independence, uh, mm-hmm. especially from a realm of economics. Mm-hmm. Uh it's like, how do you exhaust and even know? Like, I think some of these options, as opposed to the the a monolith of things that need to happen mm-hmm. in our community, mm-hmm. which is sometimes, you know, we package it like that in marketing. It's easier to grab on to, like, if black people get this, then everything will be great for the black community. Mm-hmm. The reality is. It's this, that, the other, 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 Mm -hmm. this, 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 this. You know, it's many dynamics of this. But certain realities need to be exhausted. Mm -hmm. The reality of the black man being able to live in a neighborhood around nothing but white people may need to be exhausted for that black man to realize that, wait, 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 wait. Mm -hmm. Living in the white neighborhood is not heightening my quality of life. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you never exhausted that reality, you would never be there. So similarly, if I interrupt you with the use of electoral politics. Right. If you think back to prior to 1972, which I think was the year Coleman Young was elected, I think he was or maybe it was 73 and he took office in 74. Maybe I'm Mm -hmm. trying to remember. But, um, you know, prior to that. um. Uh, you know, b- black people don't have much, much uh, electoral political power in the in the city of Detroit, and so, um, man, I forgot what I, was I think. Going. I, I think your point, and, and I feel the same way. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's not economics, it's not politics, it's not the justice system. Mm-hmm. It's a mix of all, but but at, at, at least sticking our, our, our flag in the ground with self-determination at least builds upon a premise mm-hmm. where where we're defining our own destiny. I, I remember what I was going to say. You were talking about, you know, we have to exhaust certain things. Yeah, and yeah. so the point I was going to make is that, you know, there was a big thrust. And, you know, you might know about the National Black Independent Political Party. You know, yeah. I don't know if you heard of the Gary Convention and all that. It's something, it's something actually, I just got a call about something close coming okay. around that. And, you know, Coleman Young was involved but, in that. Mm-hmm. Amiri Baraka was one of the main yes. figures in pulling that together. Yes. And so, you know, this is a big thrust to get black people elected. And then, like you say, we have to exhaust that. So now, you know, 40 years later, 50 or whatever, 40, 50 years later. Yeah. What what I, what do we have to show for having, you know, black, black people, people in political elected. office? Yeah. You know, we kind of had to go that route to see that while we can get some short term gains, that is not the answer to black liberation. So I was just agreeing with you in terms of you have to exhaust certain things. People have to try, go up certain roads and see that's futile, you know, or that's limited. You have limited gains doing that before we sharpen our ideology. And, th- and, and this is the other thing I want to say that, you know, like you say, Black Lives Matter is a slogan. Black power is a slogan and mm-hmm. they can be interpreted various ways. Uh, you know, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. That's a slogan that can be interpreted various ways. And so, you know, some people just got stuck at that basic kind of black level that, yeah, we want to wear our hair, our hair natural. We want to be proud of ourselves. You know, we want to have, you know, some control in our communities. But many people didn't make the leap to a revolutionary consciousness where, they are just straight up fighting for black self-determination so that we're in control of our, so that we're governing ourselves. 
And so unless you have an ideology that really points you in that direction, then probably you're going to be involved in a lot of reformist activities. And so I'm saying that the slogan Black Lives Matter in and of itself is not necessarily revolutionary. The slogan black power in and of itself is not necessarily revolutionary. It depends on how you interpret it based on your ideology. And so we have to have some set of ideas that guides us from where we are to where we're trying to get to. First, we have to have an idea where are we trying to get to, right? And, and that's, I guess, a bigger question. How do, how do, how do you come about that ideology. How do you how do you even have that framework of self determination and independence? Uh, yeah, study is is one of the most important aspects, you know. And while I'm not for just getting caught up in study groups and reading for years and years and years and not doing anything, I think study is important. And study groups can be important if they're connected to action. And let's stop. Let's stop right there. Okay. okay because I've had a lot of times, uh, usually with. Uh, Usually with quasi, we can go back and forth on theory and stuff. And, and I'm definitely one of those, hey, let's just get out here and do it. You know what I'm saying? Let's let's build Detroit is different. Mm -hmm. But the older I get, the more I am understanding that balance of it. Mm -hmm. But when you study, you also need to know what to study and how to study. Yeah. How do you even know what to study and how to study? Because, yeah, it could be a lot of people that look to as I'm looking at history be, being written now mm -hmm. from the civil rights movement mm -hmm. and revolutionary movements. Mm -hmm. Where I'm seeing around Black History Month, it's a lot of uh, known informants mm -hmm. <laughs> that are being exalted as heroes. And it's mm -hmm. like, I don't know if uh, that guy was yeah. working with the FBI. Well, he should be uh, <laughs> yeah. studied Again, per se again like that. this is, you know, this is why we have to have ideology, you know, um, because many people, if, the, if you're, you know, Kwame Kenyatta used to say all the time, black is necessary but not sufficient. So if that's your only criteria, then you'll say, oh, yeah, Colin Powell, you know, he really, you know, we should really be proud of him, you know, or Clarence Thomas or, you know, or, yeah. or whoever or the the police chief in Philadelphia, you know, Chief Outlaw is her name, actually, yeah. you know, or whoever, you know, because they have black skin. Our last that, police chief. That, yeah, that, <laughs> that clown, you know, that we should see this as progress <laughs> because it's a black person. Mm -hmm. But uh, clearly, you know, and again, this is part of why study is important, because, you know, if we study other black nations that have achieved liberation, we see that what usually happens after independence is neo-colonialism, that you get a whole set of people that look just like the people who live there who are Im imposing the same oppressive policies on behalf of the oppressor. And so, yeah. again, you have to have a clear ideology. So in terms of what you study, so uh, one of the reasons that I think black studies or African-American studies or whatever is so important that we really should be fighting for that in our schools and all our children should be exposed to it is because part of what it teaches us is the various tendencies that have existed within our freedom movement from the time we got to this, you know, this, uh, this Western, so-called Western hemisphere, mm -hmm. that there's always been resistance movements. Mm -hmm. And in fact, resistance has been the primary characteristic of our sojourn here in the Western hemisphere. Uh, so even a cursory study of black history will begin to show those tendencies that existed. And then you could start to see, well, what are the organizations that were doing work? Who were the key leaders? What did they think about? So, I mean, that's the kind of things I would suggest that people study. And not just that. And let, let me be a little broader because, you know, there's, we need to be studying black culture in general because in so many subtle, nuanced ways, um, values and worldviews show up even for example if you're reading novels mm -hmm. you know as a younger activist i only read 
you know, history, political books. But then, you know, I, I, I took an African-American literature course at Wayne State, and I began to see how in these narratives that you see in novels, sometimes you see a smaller, just a section of the larger culture, maybe how it manifests within a family or within a particular neighborhood. And all of that goes into us having a more full understanding of who we are and, you know, and, and what the characteristics of our, of our culture are. So, you know, studying black literature, studying black music, all of that is important. But I think it's particularly important to study the history of black freedom movements in this country and throughout the world. You know, Malcolm X said, and I'll end the point with this, uh, he said that if you have a problem, you look around the world at people who had, a, who had a similar problem and you see what they did to solve their problem and you'll know what you have to do to solve yours. So he was in, in, he was uh, encouraging us to study revolutionary movements around the world. And I, I would suggest that in addition to studying our own history, culture and uh, tremendous legacy of resistance in this country, that we study international liberation movements as well. So I, I guess the, the, the deeper question even there becomes it's many people that, that do feel liberated. Um, I think that one of the key concepts is I often get in debates. Um, I'm more anti-white supremacy than I am capitalism, because I think even through socialism, through communism and many of these other systems of economics uh, ha have galvanized. And, and it's been through the lens of race. That has been oppressive. I think if 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 capitalism were executed the way that it was taught to me in business school, where supply actually meets demand, it would be different. But uh, th this same concept. So of you're a capitalist. You're a black capitalist. I just want to clarify this. I'm not a black capitalist. I'm. I'm you're a black I, person who supports capitalism. I don't support capitalism. You want a kinder. Either. You want a kinder, gentler, more just Hilarious. capitalism. No, I, I would say that. I would say that I. I would say that the 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 way that it's been distorted, like most these systems. I mean, even when I look at socialism, in because like on paper, socialism looks amazing, but then I look at what happens to a lot of black people in Cuba, and it's like, damn, that's disgusting. Uh, on paper, communism looks amazing, and then I look at the way that a lot of uh, Chinese and uh, Russian people have treated black people, and I say, damn, that's disgusting. So I, I see the lens of of. The same way that democracy is. It, it's this is a concept that was presented to me. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it's the underline is this is white supremacy. Mm -hmm. So capitalism in America, American capitalism is white supremacy. They can dress it up however they want to call it. But but the root of it. Mm -hmm. So they can put a black face in front of me. They can say, hey, that's a black billionaire. So you're saying that that this guy's a white supremacist. I'm saying that, yeah, the the resources that he's using or she is using is mm -hmm. executing white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And they have put that in, in and exalted that by every form and definition, period. So, But if supply meets demand and I have a good and currency, whatever we agree upon as a currency, mm -hmm. and we can exchange that. And I've told that's the barter system. Mm -hmm. I'm for that. Well, let me, if I can just uh, gently challenge you. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, and, let, and let me say that uh, uh, without any hesitation, I'm anti-capitalist. Gotcha. I think capitalism is a terrible system for mm -hmm. humanity and for the planet. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why. Mm -hmm. Whether it's controlled by black people, white people, Asian people, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and I do agree with your analysis that uh, white uh, American capitalism is totally steeped in white supremacy. Um, so one of the basic pillars of capitalist thought is the idea of private property ownership. Mm -hmm. And 
that is not a universal concept. Uh, as we know with the indigenous people here in what we now call America, they did not have this concept of ownership of the land that you then pass down to usually in European society, your son. And then in perpetuity, you know, you have you have this owner, so-called ownership of this property. That concept didn't exist. And similarly, in African societies, that concept didn't exist. You may have had a king who, in a sense, had possession of the lands kind of on behalf of supposedly the, you know, the collective. And I I don't want to minimize, you know, uh, African kings who were tyrants also. You know, that's another Mm -hmm. aspect of the reality. Um, But um, they didn't have this concept of private ownership of property. And so... In capitalism, that's the basis that, you know, you can own the land and that you can have a piece of paper called a deed within gives you the right to, as a private individual, extract resources from the land and build wealth. So even when you're talking about fair exchange, that fair exchange is still rooted in exploitation of the land. And in this case, it's rooted in colonialism and dispossession of the indigenous population. And so uh, I would say that Capitalism is based on a faulty premise, and that part of that premise is the idea of private land ownership. And it's, uh, sp- I think it's a spiritually bankrupt concept, and it's not a concept that's consistent with our culture. I would, um, I would take a, I would say uh, I agree with you there, I, and I don't agree that land is something to be owned. I, I really, even the whole idea, I, I think more so like, uh, I guess that's where I may be in the lens of barter system. But my biggest, I guess, uh, the 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 most corrosive dynamic of capitalism to me is the idea of scarcity and scarcity has to exist, which I don't believe in scarcity. I think of our people. I'm a, I'm a person that believes in abundance, Mm -hmm. but by imposing scarcity, Mm -hmm. like, like here in America, we have, we have enough food to feed the world. I don't know, probably like seven times over, Mm -hmm. but we still have so many people that are hungry Mm -hmm. because you need scarcity to exist. It's uh, these, I mean, my, my community itself, in which you're kind of an extension of my community mm. uh, in the same neighborhood. Mm. The bank would rather have you default and get the hell out that house and have me not have a neighbor mm-hmm. to push scarcity. Yeah. Where in reality, and this is more, I guess, my own distort. Like, really, I, I'm against all these systems because as far as I'm concerned, it's all white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the term is, but mm-hmm. I'm as anti-capitalist as I am socialist mm-hmm. And well, communist and well, let me, all let, of let me say let me say let me say this, and, and uh, I hear you and I feel you. Yeah, and and so while I'm anti-capitalist, probably you know if you'd asked me 20 years ago, am I a socialist? I would have said yes, mm-hmm. and probably I still I am some kind of socialist in some way. Mm-hmm. But in general, I say I'm I'm moving away from any kind of like boxes and yeah. strict straight line thinking. So what I really think, and I, th- there's an Asian guy named Aaron Tanaka, out of uh, Boston, who I really admire. And he is he advanced this theory that perhaps there's a third way, right, that there, it's not just a question of capitalism or socialism. And I agree with you that many of the manifestations of socialism that we've seen are also steeped in white supremacy. Yeah. Socialism does not destroy white supremacy. Carlos Moore, uh, in his book Blacks in Cuba, wrote about wrote about this. And Carlos Moore was a friend of Malcolm X's, by the way, was with him in Paris. And uh, mm-hmm. any anyway. Uh, yeah, so just because you're socialist doesn't mean that you have ridded yourself of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And similarly, in Detroit, on the garden scene or the food scene, just because you're a, a person <laughs> that wants organic food and wants food justice, it doesn't mean you've ridded you're yourself white of white supremacy. Yeah. You know, but um, but you know, I think we, 
I think what's going to be required is for us to think about some things that have never existed, frankly. Okay. And I and and really, if if I would say I I I I'm I'm for that. What what you just said because because it's when when I think about uh even what 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 we're doing, we all play a role in society. The whole concept of ownership itself is unjust. The whole concept of needing currency was a person that lacked skill sets wanting to impose themselves on something. If if I'm in a village and you make food, I I I, I make um I make houses, uh you know, someone else cooks food. Uh, someone else, um, someone else tends to. I don't know. We we may have guard dogs or something. Someone else is in the culture. Someone else does clothes. Someone else does music. Like we all play a role in society. Mm -hmm. The idea of infusing currency is like mm -hmm. basically mm -hmm. so a bank can can be a barter to to quantify these values. Mm -hmm. But who's to mm -hmm. say that this person that um, who's to say the person that may have made some string beans is worth. That person deserves mm -hmm. to have a house. Mm -hmm. Capitalism has imposed value systems on like a person cooking string beans ain't worth a house. Mm -hmm. Whereas I'm still so reconditioned in my mind and my thought process. Let's say if I had a neighbor that didn't pay anything in mortgage or taxes, mm -hmm. but they were in that house and they uh, they engaged in the community. I'm all for that. And I'm not going to sit back and say, well, why? Why do they not have to pay what I have to pay? I could care less. Mm -hmm. I want my neighborhood filled up with people that want to be here and be present. Mm -hmm. And that's how I feel about community. Mm -hmm. And it's the whole concept of this whole rugged individual. Mm -hmm. Another premise of. Mm -hmm. Americana, capitalism, democracy that, you know, for lack of better terms, it's bullshit. Mm. There's no rugged individual. Mm. Everything about this structure was stolen we and cuss. taken away from people. I'm yeah, glad that we can cuss on this. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Um, but I want to get back to this question of ideology. And yeah. um, because, again, if we don't have some and I'm not for, again, any kind of like narrow dogmatic because I think what we have to do is we have to be flexible in our thinking that we're always reassessing things. And really, even, you know, the, the idea of dialectical and historical materialism, which is kind of what part of the basis of Marxist political theory, it, you know, it suggests that society is always evolving and we have to, you know, we have to also adjust our, yeah. our thinking. You know, our thinking is continually evolving as we're studying the objective reality and then we're acting to try to change that reality, that through acting on the reality, it gives us a better idea about the theory, right? You can't just develop theory in isolation. You have to be out in the streets yeah. with the people doing it. You know, a lot of this stuff sound good, you know. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, at Kwanzaa, you know, you know, Ujima, Umoja, Kujima, yeah. that sound real good at Kwanzaa, right? Yeah. But then when you go out on, you know, on Dexter, and how do you how do you make that Execute real collective work and responsibility? Yeah, how, how do you, how do you yeah. make that real to the to the people yeah. in the neighborhood? Yeah. You know, it becomes much much more difficult. Mm -hmm. And so, so anyway, I'm just saying we have to have some kind of clear set of right. ideas, but we also have to have a mindset that is flexible enough that we're constantly growing. Back to this Aaron Tanaka point, uh, I think that, and and I I really hate to admit this, and this probably will be the only time I ever say this publicly, <laughs> uh, but. Um. You know, my study of um, ancient Kemetic philosophy, which was hijacked by the Greeks, yeah. uh, suggests that everything is dialectical, that everything breaks into two, and that nothing is all anything. Nothing is all good. Nothing is all bad. These elements are present in everything. Mm -hmm. And so if we accept that as being true, as much as I hate to admit it, 
there are some aspects of the capitalist system that are good. It mm-hmm. can't. That's just the nature of things. It mm-hmm. can't be all bad. There has to be some elements of it that are good. Same thing with socialism. There has to be some aspects of socialism that are good and some aspects that are bad. And so, um, so what I'm in favor of is looking at what is the best available in existing systems and how do we combine that with innovative thought because we're faced with situations that humanity has never been faced with before. Sure. And so we have to also bring some new thinking that combines with the best of what already exists. And I, I think that kind of flexibility where we're not caught up, you know, we're guided by a set of ideas, but we're not so caught up that we can't uh, be flexible and draw from various sources, I think is important. And, and uh, I, what you said is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm completely in line with that. Like, I, I definitely am not a fan of any of these systems because I think that so much of the world is distorted through white supremacy. And I really do think that the value we bring as a people is social capital. But that's so devalued in this system because traditionally those structures, those white men don't have access to social capital the same way. Mm-hmm. I think about the richness of a person like you. I think about the richness, you know, my friend Sterling or, or uh, rest in peace, Queen Mother uh, Ocean Dar. Like a person like that, Queen Mother could have, she traveled the world and, and people rushed at the idea of welcoming her. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what if that resource was, I got to pay for a plane ticket. If that resource was, we have to coordinate connecting her to this, mm-hmm. you know, people like that, the, the richness of social capital that, like I say, couch surf from now for 30 years and people would have welcomed the best of whatever they had to offer to her Mm -hmm. but to have that it takes a richness in character Mm -hmm. not like um you know what's seen in the chinese system of like where they grade i think they have like a social grade but because the government has something to do with that Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying but the community collectively and, it, and like you say, it's in the streets because it's how people respond to you. Mm-hmm. And it's so many people in our community that have that richness. Uh, rest in peace, my godmother. I mean, my mom, Orthea Barnes, my mom, Jan Frazier. Like, it's certain people that just have such a richness of of abundance of what they've offered the community. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the currency. Mm-hmm. If, if, if I had to say a currency we need to exchange on, it's that. Mm-hmm. Now, when I offer stuff like that in business school to any of my business teachers, they look at me like, well, that can't be quantified. And And I'm like, because as a white man, you're further away from that Mm -hmm. than anybody else would be, especially as a white man that, quote unquote, owns property. Mm -hmm. Because even this whole, quote unquote, property, the stewards of that property probably ain't you. It's going to be people that are further away from you. Mm -hmm. Hence, we've seen many properties and lands become dilapidated, fall apart, crumble. Without whoever that real social capital, whoever the person with the real character was, whoever the steward of what that truly was, no longer exists with it, you know. And 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 thinking like this, as you say, thinking outside the box, mm-hmm. definitely is is a stretch for many. But it's even how I do this with Detroit is different, you know. As people are still always surprised, like. How much you going to charge me for my podcast? It's like, I'm not going to charge you for your podcast because this is something that I see a bigger vision. I don't want you to have to quantify and stress yourself because I've seen what that can do to our people. Like, you know, uh, it's like, man, damn, I got to pay $50 an hour for some studio time and I really don't got a show. They're still trying to figure stuff out. The creative process is enough energy, as you said, for me. 
And, and even in that ground, as you said, like touching the ground is some energy in that. And now I got another great point for you. Uh, most Americans right now have huge vitamin D deficiencies, which vitamin D is the easiest thing to get because it's just going outside and having that melanin stir up that sunlight for you. But even black folks now. Yeah. You know, again, I uh, shy away from any kind of simplistic solutions and, I, and yeah. I'll say or simplistic yeah. analysis. Yeah. And I, I'm outside a lot. Right. I do farming and I do agriculture. I'm outside a lot, but I have a vitamin D deficiency. You, wanna, I, you know, one thing I do, I go to the doctor every year, mm-hmm. basically, because I think Western medicine is good at diagnosis. Because <laughs> they do want to uh, get you to. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's trying, you know, some of the things he wants me to do, I'm not doing, you know, like, yeah, like he, you know, he was trying to encourage me take a baby aspirin every day. You know, I was like, why? He said, because, you know, we recommend that for men your age, you know, you, it reduces the heart, the risk of heart attack. Now, just in the last two weeks, I heard in the medical establishment, they're now questioning that and countering that. But, <laughs> but you know, that's the kind of thing he was recommending mm-hmm. I do. And I, well, I'm saying to him, well, so this data is based on studying who? You know, how many 65-year-old men, black men, have you studied who have been vegan for 40 years and go to the gym three times a week. What what is the, What does the data say on that? Mm. You know, so they don't have that data. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's based on another demographic. Uh, but but generally, you know, Western medicine is good for diagnosis. So I do go to the doctor every year for a checkup just to, mm-hmm. you know, get my blood work and everything. And then I, you know, then if I have some deficiency, I'm going to determine how I deal with it. I'm not necessarily going to follow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, but something else I want to say. I want to go back to an earlier point. Yeah about socialism and capitalism. And I'll say that I, I agree with you that much of socialism, uh, the way it's practiced, is also rooted in white supremacy. But it's also rooted in this idea, even though they might reject the idea of private property ownership, it's rooted in the idea that the earth is a commodity. And the earth is here for us to extract things from to make money. And so the difference is just how that money is distributed and owned, but the still the, the idea of seeing the earth as a, a commodity exists in socialism also. So you have some people like uh, the folks at Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi, and other folks around the world who have been pushing the idea of eco-socialism, that you know there has to be a form of socialism that views the earth as sacred and that doesn't view it as a commodity just to strip things from, you know, mm-hmm. because we're seeing the impact that that kind of thinking has on the planet and on uh, all of the, the people, animals, and plants that share the planet. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's definitely deep. I, I mean, uh, this is more like a, a philosophical discussion than, than like the stories that we had last time. <laughs> but this is deep because it's, it's good to stay sharp in philosophy and thought process mm-hmm. uh, as leading efforts and, and kind of just that point. So uh, as you're as you're welcoming other people in because y- you work with you work in in, in a band, which. Being a part of a band is uh, that's that takes a lot of collective work and responsibility. You, you know, I want to say something about the band too. Uh-huh. Uh, since you give me permission to do this, yeah, I want to say the Molly Wop crew ain't nothing to fuck with. Yes, but I just want to say that. But go ahead. love, love Molly Wop. <laughs> I love Molly Wop. Yes, yes, and uh, definitely I want to hear you guys. Shout version. out to Wu Tang though, because I, I kind of stole it. Yeah, I know. I want to hear you guys' version of Wu Tang's <laughs> with that, but. Um, how do you 
I, I, I've always found it as I was giving you the the praise in that you, you have a good style of like working with people where we're at, especially mm-hmm. our people, uh, to 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 allow uh, where they're at and then you know meet them at their level of success and then present your level of success and and look to match that. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Well, I think it starts with uh, an honest assessment of yourself. And like most young black considered myself to be revolutionary activist in my 20s, I thought I knew every damn thing, mm-hmm. you know. And then as I grew a little older and matured, by the time I got to my late 20s, I started to realize I didn't know shit, you know. Hmm. I mean, I knew a little, 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 little bit. But, you know, and so, and then I also realized that, you know, I had so many deficiencies myself, so many things I need to work on within myself um, that, you know, I couldn't be judgmental of other people. I can't be, you know, I mean, I got the the work, the work I got to do is full time, you know, to make myself a, a better human being. And so that develops a kind of humility where when you realize your own deficiencies, you have more compassion for other people and the deficiencies that, that they're dealing with. You're not as judgmental. And you can accept people where they are. But it starts with accepting yourself, knowledge of your own self. And, you know, we talk about knowledge of self a lot of time. We're talking about, you know, like Elijah Muhammad talked about, you know, mm-hmm. not knowledge of us as a people. But also we have this knowledge of this individual manifestation of spirit in a body. You know, we have to have an understanding of that and the trauma that we've all individually been through, the trauma that we've collectively been through, how being raised in Detroit, you know, how being a black man raised in Detroit has impacted us, you know, even to the point where, you know, I thought about how I walk. People tease me all the time, especially when I'm in other places Mm -hmm. and they say I got a little bebop in my walk. And, you know, I thought about it. It's like, yeah, I do have a bebop in my walk. And part of the reason I have a bebop in my walk is because growing up in black male culture, it's like if motherfucker look at you and, and say, oh, he ain't really, you know, you become a target. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we all trying to figure out how do we survive in this environment without getting jumped on without. And so part of what you have to do, you have to put on some bravado yeah. in terms of how you carry yourself. So, you know, some motherfucker don't just look at you and say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm getting ready to beat his ass. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm beat this Steve Urkel motherfucker's ass. You know, yeah. they, you know, they look at you and they feel like, oh, there might be some, you know, there's going to be some resistance. that yeah. you. And so that manifested how we walk. It manifests in our use of language, you know, and so and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I'm saying I had to kind of go back and look at my own life and, you know, how did growing up impact, you know, how to go into post junior high school, uh, getting jumped on by a gang. How did this impact how I see myself? You know, anyway, that kind of introspection, I think, is a, a necessary process and it's a continuous process in order to really know yourself, know your own strengths, your own opportunities for growth and to recognize and appreciate that others also own that a similar journey and they have their own strengths and their own opportunities for growth. And you have to accept people where they are. And, and I find that uh, like it's very humbling because oftentimes in that activist world, and this is just in my observation. And even when I come in, it's a lot of people that carry a lot of heavy things. You kind of spoke on this a little bit with the students in African center schools. Mm. 
uh, that some of the students that came to the African Center schools are people that, you know, every school, it was like the last ditch effort of like, yeah. we know you're going to love them. Yeah, that's right. It, some of the activist community can, and revolutionary community can have some of the same people where it's like, we got to love you through it because it's like you just off the chain. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, whereas I know, you, you know, you, you tried to be in the uh, first you tried the white group. Then you tried the 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 black group of people mm-hmm. trying to be white. Then you tried the like lesser version of that. They kicked you out the fraternity and sorority. They kicked you out of the 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 young, re- you know, Detroit regional chamber. And now you at the. Pro black, 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 African mm-hmm. group, mm-hmm. and you just off the chain. Like you, you know, let me say, let me say this, Kyrie. You know, <laughs> Some, something I found in my fifty years or so of involvement in the struggle, yeah, is that our movement attracts, frankly, a lot of misfits, and and not yes. exclusively, yeah, but people who. If they weren't in the movement, they'd still be misfits. They wouldn't. They they're, yeah, they're not well what, socially adjusted. Yeah, and so. Because we're all embracing, because we say we love all black people mm-hmm. and, you know, come on in and we go hug you and we not, you know, hey. we go, you know, we go embrace we you. you. We love and, you. You know, you can get an African name. You might even get a title. You know, you can get some, <laughs> you know, whatever. You can be, you know, whatever the case may be. I'm not going, you know, you can be yeah. Ross this or you can be the God born or whatever the case may yeah, be, yeah. you know. And, and so it, you know, elevates people and gives people a sense of uh, a greater sense of themselves. But mm-hmm. the reality is, you know, in all of these movements, we got a certain percentage of people who are uh, who are a little off. And, you know, I'm just saying we have to recognize that the social movements tend to attract people sometimes. In addition to the people who are like really into it, it's attracting people who are trying to find something to fit into as well. And, and, and I've recognized that over time. And I think that even having the welcoming, having the welcoming uh disposition and be humble and being patient with some of those people like it's it's many times where i've uh you know like the top of the year is coming you know i'm sure i'll get um a phone call from it's maybe about like 15 people i'm thinking they're always like we can do this and we can do that and we can do this and we can do that and it's like all right brother you know we can let's let's talk and Mm -hmm. then it's like yeah you just come on by and it's no i gotta be bigger it gotta be this and i gotta be that and then I ain't not, I'm not probably going to talk to him again until mm, next yeah, January. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I you still know, need to. David Rambo told me a long time ago, he said that for many of us, sorry for interrupting you. He said for many of us, going to these meetings is like therapy. Hmm. And so, hmm. so what I found is that many times talking about liberation becomes a substitute for actually achieving it. Right. That it, it enables us to cope with the oppression in the same sense that maybe going to church allows us to cope with the earthly suffering, you know, because we're seeing this vision, you know, after we die, we're going mm-hmm. to heaven or whatever. And so similarly uh, within within the black movement, you know, some people are some people for some people it's therapeutic. It's the idea is not to win. The idea is not to liberate black people, but the idea is that we can be in a space where we can, you know, we can express ourselves and. Yeah. It allows us to think that within the context of an oppressive system, that maybe because we've carved out a little circle where we can wear dashiki or we can wear locks or, you know, we can be vegan or whatever, we can be under the illusion that we've achieved some liberation where we haven't really changed the larger situation. So, uh, 
you know, there's all kind of dynamics in the movement. That's one of them. That's, uh, that's unique that you said it, because I, I also think uh, even the even the black church and what it sometimes represents as, you know, I, in my mind, like you say, when, you, when I'm younger, I would get into like deeper philosophical discussions about like, you know, how this and how that. But then I understand that a lot of people are in the church for the social dynamic. They're there for the camaraderie. They're yeah. there because it's a place and space. Sure. It was my mom that once said, like, you know, this black man gets treated like this by this white man all week. But he walks through those church doors and now he's a deacon. That's right. And I'm That's somebody. Right. That's right. That's right. Garvey understood that, too. That's why he put black people in uniforms and had big <laughs> fancy titles and, you know, and big plumes and parade because he understood that. Mm-hmm. Uh in hip hop, you know, yeah, hip hop artists you know, from the beginning understand. I'm I'm master so and so so. Yeah, you know, instead of you just motherfucking John from the block. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm master. Yeah, king so. You know, it's like that mm-hmm. blowing blowing yourself up. You know, I mean that's, you know, and all again these things aren't necessarily bad. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's back to the perspective of like, how do you internalize that? Mm-hmm. Just like I I I would I often said as much as you know. I love, I mean, my life is uh, as a hip hop artist and I love it. It's my favorite art form. But I wish, I wish, you know, like some historians and psychologists could take a lot of the hip hop music and like give like a, uh, what is that? Like a, like a forward <laughs> to some of these rap songs of like, you know, I feel as though, you know, I, I feel as though, um, at times, I, I can have feelings of worthlessness. So this car and this money and this jewelry, and I feel as though my my exploitation of this woman now give me the strength to engage in this world where I feel so oppressed. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wish, you know, some of the music yeah. could have a forward because yeah. in the minds, especially of young people, yeah. I don't know how they're interpreting this. But yeah. even older people, you know, like, I, I don't know. How they're interpreting some of the mm-hmm. some of the messaging, but it's not just in hip hop, but it, it it could even be in what is pro black because mm-hmm. the same way certain preachers have like a, a the cadence of a Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a lot of places as I've traveled now, you know, the country, you know, you, you can almost expect the cadence of, of the of right. the of the black message yeah, of the yeah. oh oh wow that is the black okay yeah. this is how I'm supposed to speak this right, is the right, pacing right, right, this right, right. is these are the points this is this right. is the analysis this yeah. is what I'm supposed to deliver as opposed yeah. to like, wait, 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 pull back for a second. Mm-hmm. Who are you engaging with your community within this? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's also what for me, the the gardening is done for me. Like it's reconnecting me with my neighborhood in a different way, mm-hmm. especially doing the, a lot of studio. And thank you guys for performing it, oh, opening great, that up. Man. I look to do that again. Uh, and um, it, it, it's just reconnecting me with the neighborhood because like you say, the cat on Dexter it, you know, I, I'm I'm not about to be able to pull out, you know, the first fruits and say, hey, brother, you know, yeah. where does this fall within the seven principles of Kwanzaa? Right. I have to live it in a different way to right. interpret it right. and reimagine it for right. him right. 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 or her, right. you know. You know, p- part of why I and DBCF is in Detroit Black Community Food Security Network is so committed to this food co-op we're building is because it's something concrete, mm. You know, instead of going out to people in the street saying, oh, brother, you need to come to Kwanzaa and learn about the Nguzo Saba and learn about Ujamaa, <laughs> yeah. you know, how if we pool our money together, we can, you know, we can be free. Instead of, you know, the rhetorical, it's like we building this shit, you know what I'm saying, manifest it. And so that, you know, people can can experience it. That was, that was one of the powerful things about the African-centered schools we had, Aisha Shule and the Sodom Institute, that it wasn't just the idea 
You could walk up in there and there's hundreds of people in there every day and it's happening. It's, you know, it's real. And so that, for me, that's how we win people over. You know, when people come out to D-Town Farm and be like, oh, they growing hundreds of pounds of fresh organic produce. Something clicks. You know, it's real. And so I think that's how we win people over when you can show people in a concrete way how we have programs where that are the manifestation of these ideas as opposed to just the rhetoric of the idea, which is what black activists get caught up on a lot of times. And and then also, uh, how do you avoid even with the rhetoric of because uh, it's a lot of opposing views. I don't want to say infighting, but I would say opposing views to the point where things can be so segmented. I think you've uh, you've been someone that has worked with many people that do have opposing views. How how do you do that? And how do you even keep your team in line? Because it may be, you know, because sometimes that that no, nah, we should be focused on this. And, and, you know, we need to focus on uh, black justice first. You know, we need a security team and we need this. How, how do you focus? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I'm not like sure I'll keep anybody in line. I'm, I'm trying to keep my damn self in line. If gotcha. I can do that, that'd be okay. a full time job. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, as I said earlier, an awareness of your own self and a, the humility that develops when you realize how much work you have to do on yourself kind of, you know, you, you lower it down a notch. And so you can relate to people. You know, you're not up with your nose in the air. I know more than you. I've read more Dr. Ben books than you. Or, you know, <laughs> that's not what it's about. It's like, you know, you have to have a sense of humility and also understanding that that person who you think that you're woker than in some ways may be woker than your ass, right? Because you might be awake in some ways, but there's still aspects of yourself that maybe you haven't addressed. And so, again, dial it back a notch. Have some humility. I think that's one of the most important aspects of how I've been able to build unity across a broad cross-section. The other thing is this, again, this understanding that nothing is all good and nothing is all bad. That everybody has something positive to contribute. So what I try to find when I relate to any human being, any human being that I come in contact with, I know there's a divine purpose for that. So I'm trying to find out. What is it that I'm to learn? What is it that I'm to gain? What is the good that's to come out of this interaction? And I'm always looking for that. I'm looking at whenever I meet a human being, what is it we can agree on? Not what is it we can disagree on? For example, you know, I've been in many meetings over the years where people are arguing about ideology and, you know, people are splitting and fragmenting even within one organization. Yeah. I mean, just like in churches, right? You got Mount Zion Baptist, then you got motherfucker split you got greater mountain new sign mm-hmm. you know be, you know a lot of times it's just ego you know so everybody want to be the king of the hill um but trying to find out what are the commonalities right not what do we disagree on but what do we agree on and so for example uh with d-town farm personally and you see you got me cussing since you gave me permission to do it yeah, yeah. i don't give a fuck if you muslim if you roster, if you five percenter, if you go to the shrine of the Black Madonna, if you are uh, atheist, atheist, <laughs> if you up on Dexter, I don't give a fuck. What I care about is can we work together to produce this food that we all need? Mm-hmm. You don't have to change your religion. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, you know, to 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 put on a dashiki. You don't have to change your name. 
Can we work together for the common good? And so that's that's what I try to do, try to put projects in place that unite people in a concrete way across ideology mm. and philosophy so that what we're united around is the actual building of this thing that benefits us collectively. Hmm. That, that's 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 deep. And, and even having that in foundation, I think, do you think that um, you think that's like the culmination of the school, the the store being in bands? Uh, like, is that the culmination of of so much of the work? Well, I think that, yeah, I think, that, you know, being involved in the movement for 50 years, you know, if you're serious about it, you're going to gain some wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so certainly I think I'm much wiser as, 60, as a 65-year-old activist than I was as a 25-year-old activist. So, yeah, all those years of working with people and getting my head knocked and being frustrated and mm -hmm. seeing victories and all of those things have shaped, you know, I've evolved in my thinking, which is what's supposed to happen. And so hopefully... I'm wiser now, and hopefully that wisdom enables me to relate to people across a, a broad cross-section of our community. And, and frankly, I'm able to relate to all kinds of people, you know. I mean, I'm bedded, embedded in the black community, but, you know, I go across the country and talk to white groups. I do all kinds of stuff, and I'm mm -hmm. able to because I know who I am, and I know where I'm seated and so I can relate to any other human being. It doesn't make me a difference. And the commonality more so is whatever that brought you there the intentionality as yeah. opposed to trying to uh trying to like win a person over on everything like where it's like we agree on this 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 we like the same songs like the same food like the same eh, yeah. you know but then at the same time i mean there's certain principles i stand on that i'm not bending you know because somebody else disagrees i mean so you know so when, when you know who you are it gives you a sense of firmness and steadfastness but it also gives you a sense of humility which mm -hmm. allows you to appreciate you know like they say namaste i recognize the divine in you and so if we can see that in each other you know see each other as an extension of the divine i'm not higher than you i'm not lower than you we both are manifestations of the divine and so how do we connect that to to manifest something in the physical world and see this is the thing i think we haven't really mastered we've studied a lot of african history and studied african theological systems but we haven't come to on a large level to really understand how we take these spiritual ideas and manifest them in the physical world. It you know, the idea of being spiritual is not to escape from the world, but it's to use those spiritual principles to manifest the type of world that we think should be here. And mm -hmm. so so you know, we have to learn how to how to go from the rhetorical idea stage to the manifestation stage. And so for me, that's the whole thing of mastery, that you're able to manipulate your environment and you're able to, you know, like in sort of Institute, we had a pledge every day where we say we, we are the creators of our own reality. And so developing that understanding is tremendously empowering because you're not looking or feeling dependent upon others to do something for you. But you see yourself as having the God power in order to manifest reality. And so. You know, so this is what I do. You know, I, bu I build institutions that are a manifestation of these ideas. And and uh, an another one of the and as you said that, I was just naturally thinking of another thing that I a core thing that I truly strongly dislike about capitalism is that it looks to incept demand and in in desire and want, you know, because if if we feel so fulfilled 
then we're not looking for what's external. We're not looking to Christmas so that, you know, I can get this, I don't know, whatever I was, gadget. I was telling whatever, somebody, you know? I was telling somebody yesterday, um, 19, I think 98, I was on a trip to Senegal. Mm-hmm. And there was seven of us in a van, a small van. We were traveling with a small group, and we were driving from Dakar to Tuba. And on the road, on the side, on the way to Tuba, we saw some women pounding millet with a mortar and pestle. And we said, let's go over there and, you know, let's stop. Let's go over there and talk. And it was a small group, so, you know, we just parked the van, walked across the road, and we had a brother with us, uh, the brother who led the trip, Brother Ibu Nyang, who lived in Detroit. You know, he spoke Wolof and French and what have you. So he was able to communicate for us on our behalf. And um, um, it, it, it's a longer story. I'm going to try to cut to the point, And I'll, I'll just say that uh, it was an incredible experience, including, you know, the people in the village said to us, you know, when we explained we were from America, they said, oh, you know, we've heard of you and we've been we're waiting for your ride. We were the first black people from America ever to go to this village. And mm. so they said, you know, you know, we've heard of you. And we were we've been awaiting. And they said, come back on your way from Tuba in two days. and We're going to put on a big celebration, which they did. They called people wow. from all the neighboring villages. I got on videotape. Wow. But none of that is the point. The point is this, that I developed a friendship with a person in the village it was a Sereer village, actually, S-E-R-E-R, which is an ethnic group inside of Senegal. He was the griot in the village. He was the drummer. And so when they put on this big celebration for us when we came back, he was like the main drummer, and he had his wives dancing. There were other people dancing as well. Um, when uh, I, I came back in the next year to Senegal and sought him out, this brother lived literally in a, a, a hut made of millet stalks and with a thatch roof in the middle of what to us would look like a desert, just sand everywhere. So I come see the brother. He gives me his drum, right? Now I'm saying this is a person that by our standards is dirt poor. You know, no running water, no refrigeration, no air conditioning, no all this stuff. None of the American amenities. Mm -hmm. But this brother is not only happy, but extremely generous. He's given me something, right? Mm. And it just showed me how how distorted things are here where we have every fucking thing, mm. you know, even for the most part, the poorest of us can click on a switch most of the time and the lights come on yeah. or turn a knob and water comes out of it, you know. And here you got people that by American standards, like I say, are dirt poor but are happy. Their humanity is intact and they're giving and generous and loving. And here you got people with everything that are like hoarding and yeah, like you say, the uh, scarcity. I got to, you know, I, I need more for me and yeah. all for me, none for you. You know, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, it, I, I think that, um, yeah, the whole idea. And I mean, it's a game is, you know, my schooling is in marketing to create this whole idea of people needing something. And that's another one of the tragic things about our system is that the medical industry is now the biggest industry in America, which is so backwards and sick, you know, but uh, that's a whole nother long diatribe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but it is backwards and sick that yeah. that uh, literally for your life, you're going to pay money, you know, yeah, uh, crazy. you know, where it's presented to you, you know, as if, you know, so do you care about living or not care about living? 
because that's where we can cash in mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, a, a society built on um, preventative medicine, mm-hmm. a society built on keeping people healthy. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think in that world of abundance, you know, it, things are shared. You know, things are shared. If, if, if you have true character, it's shocking and surprising the way that things shine on people. Mm-hmm. And, and then even, you know, some of the heroes that are exalted that just look, you know, corny because really the only reason I'm supposed to look up to this person is because they, quote unquote, have money. Like seriously, I know we broadcasting, but I'm gonna take a uh, selfie so I can prove. Oh, do so I can prove to people I was really here. <laughs> <laughs> we in the mix, so yeah, man. So I guess as we get to closer to the end, uh, what what's what's next to come? What's 2022? Uh, so we're starting construction on the Detroit Food Commons. When I say we, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network and our development partner, Develop Detroit. Mm -hmm. So we're building a new 31,000-square-foot building on the southeast corner of Woodward and Euclid, which Mm. will be called the Detroit People, I'm sorry, the Detroit Food Commons, which will house the Detroit People's Food Co-op, a cooperatively-owned grocery store on the first floor. There'll be four shared-use kitchens on the second floor, a 3,000-square-foot community meeting space slash banquet hall, and offices for the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. So finally, after working on this project for 11 years, in early 2022, we are starting construction, and the construction is slated to be over in June of 2023, and finally, the Detroit People's Food Co-op will be open. Congratulations. Yeah, so that's that's the big thing that's coming for, uh, for 2022. And then also, big things coming for Molly Wap. Okay. And, you know, we talked about that a little bit. You know, I kind of jokingly but not really told people Molly Wap ain't nothing to fuck with. Molly Wap crew ain't nothing to fuck with. Mm-hmm. Halfway joking, but not yeah, not really. Real. Yeah. Uh, but we're back in the studio. And okay. so we're still working with Piranha Head. At ah, I was just about to ask you working with Piranha Head. <laughs> yeah. I, he has one of the, one of the most... <laughs> Funny Detroit is different. Air, I need to I need to get him back in. <laughs> Piranha Ed is oh boy. Like talk about social capital and uh, just a collect just energy. Ah, you know. Yeah, so I mean, you know, he's a he's a musical genius. I yeah. mean, for real, for real, for real. So we're back in the studio with him, uh, recording another album. And you know, in these times, albums don't even matter that much, you know, because it's all about digital release and so what yeah. we'll do is release single 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 and uh-huh. so you know we'll finish the single release or finish another one really and then eventually we'll have it'll be an album it'll right. be an album right but cool. so that's you know i'm excited about that too you know but the, you know the challenge with it is the stuff we're recording now is uh music that in the case of the songs i'm bringing to the table music i wrote two or three years ago right uh-huh. and so I, I can never kind of get caught up i got whole new ideas now but we're still recording the stuff I wrote three yeah. three years ago, you know. So I don't know. You know, maybe eventually we'll be able to get in the studio more where often. Catches up with yeah, the same and, day, and, and and you know, work all this stuff out. But you know, uh, you know, it's a problem. I have the same problem when I'm writing. You know, I might start writing a book, and then two years later, my ideas have shifted. You know, I'm I'm in another space, and so, um, you know, it's just a Dealing continual and evolution. Build and destroy. Yeah, destroy. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you so much. It's a great interview. Man, I got to get my contact info. If people want to get in touch with me, man. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, So yeah. let's start with, with the WAP crew, with Molly WAP. If people want to check out Molly WAP, they can check out our website, which is www.mollywapjams.com, M-O-L-L-Y-W-O-P. 
J-A-M-S, mollywopjams.com. You'll, you'll see that. You'll see that on there. Oh, cool. Continue. You'll put that no, on there. Continue, okay. though. Continue. And then if they want to contact the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network and find out about D-Town Farm or find out about our youth program, the Food Warriors Youth Development Program, they can go to our website, www.dbcfsn.org, mm-hmm. www.dbcfsn.org. FSN.org. Okay. For information on the Detroit People's Food Co-op, the cooperative natural food store that's coming to Detroit's North End, they can go to that website, which is www.DetroitPeoplesFoodCoop.com. Again, www.DetroitPeoplesFoodCoop.com. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Peace be. Peace, peace. The Detroit is Different Community Group is a 501c3 organization focused and built around the project work of the Allot of Studio Project. The Allot of Studio Project is the project allowing for podcast conversation, live music performance, and also giving away fruits and vegetables within the community. When you support the Detroit is Different Community Group 501c3 organization, you're supporting the Allot of Studio Project. Send your email address along with your donation to hashtag Detroit501c3 to the Detroit is Different community group for your tax-deductible donation letter. That's why Detroit is Different's 501c3 will exist. And I'm hoping that you are one of the people that will be willing to give to this effort of what the Detroit is Different 501c3 will be. So, as I did before, I did a cash app crowdfund campaign. I'm going to do two. I'm going to do two from now on. So you're going to have one that starts for Give Tuesday because this is the time you're looking for tax write-offs. And if you're looking to write some taxes off, we would love for you to give to our organization of Detroit is different. And this will run all month. So from November 30th to December 30th. And December 30th, we'll have something very special for you. We're celebrating Kwanzaa Day. And that day is very important. That's purpose. And you're going to get produced through Detroit is Different, a state of black Detroit address by Yousef Shakur, my homie, my friend, the author, soon to be doctor. But like I say, at heart, just a brother that loves Detroit and has a deep perspective to answer some of the questions that are burning about housing, education, access to opportunity and so much more in black Detroit. So this effort will be 30 days. And I want you to open up and start giving. Anything is accepted. At certain levels, you're going to get more. You give more than $100, you're going to get a special book about the history of Detroit is Different. What Detroit is Different is and how it came to be and kind of this story, but longer with pictures and more stories. You'll see pictures of my mom and others and all the podcasters. And... If you give more than $250, you're going to be a part of something very special. The Detroit is Different NFT. The NFT, non-fungible token, will be something that is commemorable. It will have value as time goes on. And when I say value, as time goes on, because as time goes on, we're going to accept that as an asset. We're going to quantify what that value is. You'll be able to lend against this. This will be something that you can pass on from generation to generation. And it'll be very few slots to get for this. $250 and above gets you that. I hope that you're one of those people that do support with whatever you can support with. 
Detroit is different and we're looking to continue to build. Now, we're a community group. We're a 501c3 organization. We want your help. Thank you.